Grab your Bible, would you? You believe the Bible is inspired and fallible and errant word of God? I hope you do. And I hope you believe it's uh, fresh bread for our souls today. If you're a guest, we're in a series entitled Last Words. Last Words. It's the last words of Jesus on the cross. And we're walking through. There's seven uh, distinct things that Jesus said in those hours that he hangs on the cross. Uh, someone asked me this week, a pastor, there's seven sayings. What kind of time frame is involved in those seven? We're not sure. We know there's a total of six hours. Uh, so somewhere in that time frame, Jesus utters these seven sayings that are really important for us to learn about what the cross means, okay? So you and I are gathered in these weeks. I mean, Christians around the world are making the journey to Easter, right? And so we're looking at, we'll come up to Palm Sunday, and then we'll get into Passion Week, and we'll trace the steps of our Lord. Uh, some of you that are going to go to Israel uh, next year with us, you're actually going to walk. You're going to physically walk the path that Jesus took during this time frame, uh, ultimately going to the cross and dying for us. And then, of course, on Easter, we celebrate uh, the resurrection of our Lord. Actually, we celebrate that every Sunday. But Easter is the worldwide celebration of the resurrection of Christ. But what we're doing in these weeks leading up to Easter is we're stopping, we're standing, and we're listening. And I hope you're praying that God would help you to see what you need to see and hear what you need to hear. So we're standing at the foot of the cross and we're listening to the words of our Lord. And we're trying to look at these seven sayings of Christ in chronological order as he would have spoken them. So today we jump from John last week to Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to read verses 44 and 45. And let me go ahead and tell you that the sermon today is kind of a, I would say it's a, it's a heavy one. It's a needed one, but it's a heavy one, okay? And you're going to wrestle with this. You're going to wrestle with this in your heart, and, and it's not really a, the kind of sermon that you're going to shout, okay? I, I know you're going to leave here thankful if you're a child of God. But in these moments, you're going to have to wrestle with what happens in 45 and 46 of Matthew 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Matthew writes, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Ali, Ali, Lima Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Several years ago, a young teenage girl in this church walked up to me right out there in the foyer, and she said, Pastor Tim, can I ask you a question? That's always scary, by the way, because I don't always have the answer. Can I get an amen right there? But she said to me, I'm just curious your opinion. Is it wrong to ask God why? Is it wrong to say, God, why did you let this happen? Or why are you whatever that is? And I said, you know, that's a very good question. I said, let me respond to your question with a question or with a statement. What if I told you that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Ask God why. Would that make you feel better? And she said, yeah, it sure would. I said, that's exactly what Jesus did as he was hanging on the cross. He asked God why. Why have you forsaken me? 
And I want to try to help you today answer that question and help you to see that you are in Matthew 27 and verse 46. Can we pray together? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it. Thank you that I have the opportunity and a privilege to stand here to Point Church on Interity Point Road and open up the Bible and talk about the words of Jesus. We know that every verse in the Bible is God-breathed, that it's all important, it's all relevant. It's fresh bread for our souls. We know that some passages are easier to comprehend than others. And I know that our text today is a heavy one. It's a deep one. As Jesus ponders being forsaken by the Father. I pray that this will move us. It will move us in a very deep and a profound way. I pray that every person in this room will feel and sense themselves in Matthew 27, 45, and 46. May every Christian leave here today feeling loved and accepted by the Father. May every sinner here today afresh see themselves as in need of Christ. May the Holy Spirit draw them and reveal to them their need of salvation. I pray you would give me a clear mind. I pray you would cleanse my hands and purify my heart. Holy Spirit, help me to say everything that should be said and not say anything that shouldn't be said. May it be clear, may it be distinct, and may we be moved by the fourth saying of Christ on the cross. And I pray this in Jesus' name, God's people said. Amen. Amen. Be seated if you would. When I read through the Old Testament, quite frankly, some of it is easier reading than other parts of it. Can I get an amen right there? But when I read through the Old Testament, the scriptures are always pointing to Christ. Though you do not see J-E-S-U-S on the pages of the Old Testament, you don't see the name Jesus printed in the Old Testament, I suggest to you that over and over and over again you see Christ. You very clearly see the Messiah. You very clearly see chapters in the Bible that you and I are able to look back on and to read that hundreds and hundreds of years ago were not as clear. You and I look back on those chapters today and we go, man, that, that right there is Jesus. It's so clear. I could point to several chapters in the Old Testament, but because of time, let me just uh, land first in Psalm 16. If you read Psalm 16, you will very clearly see that it is a messianic, Messiah, Jesus, a messianic chapter that points to Christ. You go on over a few more chapters and you land on chapter 22, and it also is a very, a very clear chapter where David is wrestling with the events of his life, and he begins to write in such a way that you see it very clearly pointing to the coming of Christ, and you'll see that in just a minute. Uh, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he quotes Psalm 22 and verse number 1. Let me pause a moment and say that committing the Scriptures to memory, being able to quote the Scripture, is a very great benefit in your spiritual journey in your life. 
Uh, anybody in the room that can testify today, you're walking along through life, and then the circumstances or events of life, they bring you to a point where you recall a passage in the Scripture that you've memorized. The Holy Spirit brings that passage to mind, and then it helps you to evaluate and process the events that are in front of you. Psalm 46 and verse 1. God is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. Has that verse ever meant something to anyone in the room? When you're having trouble, when you're going through problems, you know that God is there because He promises to never leave us or forsake us as His children. But it sure is a good reminder that God is there in the moments of trouble. How about Psalm 23? Uh, some authors have suggested that maybe we've done our children, our grandchildren a great disservice by not encouraging them to memorize the 22nd chapter that we'll point to in just a moment as much as we do the 23rd Psalm. Anybody in the room commit the 23rd Psalm to memory maybe in your younger years? Uh, you could stumble through it a little bit maybe. How many of you are glad I'm not going to call on you right now to do that, right? But primarily, that's one of the most familiar chapters in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. That passage means something to us because it talks about through the restless times, He leads us to peace. And even when we get to the moments of death, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us and He'll never leave us or, or forsake us. And He is preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And one day, we are going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How many times has Psalm 23 reached out and grabbed you by the hand or grabbed someone by the hand and walked you through some of the darkest hours in your life? I would again suggest to you that the memorization of Scripture, committing Scripture to memory, the circumstances and events of life will, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, will help you to bring that back. And in that moment, you know what it shows us about the Word of God? It shows us that it is eternal. It shows us that it is never-ending. It shows us that it never fades away, that it never reaches a point where it's not relevant and fresh bread for our souls. It's always relevant in, in the moment. I want to challenge you to develop that practice, memorizing Scripture. Because here on the cross in Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, I will not suggest to you that Jesus had to spend time memorizing Scripture. <laughs> Jesus is the Word, right? But I will show you that Jesus on the cross quotes from the Old Testament. Now get the picture. We are at the cross. We're standing at the cross. We want to see what we need to see. We want to feel what God wants us to feel. We want to hear what God wants us to hear. Oh, how important it is for us as Christians to daily come to the cross and be reminded, Galatians 2.20, my last verse, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and did what? He gave himself for me. That's why Jesus hung on the cross. John Stott says, The cross of Christ is the greatest and most glorious of all subjects. There is no Christianity without the cross. 
Charles Spurgeon said the cross is the center of our system. J.I. Packer says that the cross takes us to the very heart of the Christian gospel. T.T. Forsyth claimed, you do not understand Christ until you understand His cross. G. Campbell Morgan said that every living experience of Christianity begins at the cross. You see, you and I are here today because we are a people of the cross. We believe not only that it happened, but we believe that the cross is the answer for the world. And we're not here today to lift ourselves up or to lift a denomination up or to lift our church up. We are here to lift Christ up. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. We're here to lift up the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. So as we gather at the cross, Matthew 27 45 and 46 tell us that it's noon. It's noon. It's the brightest and the hottest part of the day. Darkness fills the earth from noon until 3 p.m. Now some question this as to how that's even possible. Some have even attempted to go back in history and have tried to pinpoint a time. And what does history record as actually happening in around 34, 35, maybe it was a, a sandstorm that took place, or maybe it was a, a special weather event. Some have even said it's, no, it's impossible that darkness just came from noon until 3. Exodus chapter 10 and verse 22 says that Moses lifted up his hand to the heaven, and as he stretched out his hand, darkness filled the earth. This was not the first time darkness had filled the earth. The sun is totally eclipsed. It's completely dark. Are you standing there? Can you feel it? And you're listening as Jesus in the darkness says, Ali, Ali, Lima, Sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me it was not the first time someone had uttered these words do you know what psalm 22 and verse number one says david is crying out here's what he says my god my god why have you forsaken me jesus on the cross actually quotes psalm 22 1 it was not the first time someone had uttered these words it's not the first time someone felt abandoned by God. David felt that in his own life. And I promise you, it won't be the last time someone feels abandoned by God. Anybody in the room today could testify that you have cried out to God before. God, where are you? God, why, why? God you've forgotten about me. God, you turned your back on me. I thought you loved me. God, if you love me, why am I going through this? God, where are you in the midst of my trouble? And Jesus, in his humanity, cries out, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? An interesting note about the words that he chose in Hebrew, Ali, Ali, sounds a lot like Elijah in the Hebrew language. And so there were many people around the cross that thought Jesus was crying out for Elijah. Elijah, come down. 
come down and save me. But we know that was not the case. In this moment, Jesus was being forsaken by the Father. To be forsaken is one of the saddest tragedies known to mankind. There's some people in this room. I know this because you shared it with me. There's some people in this room that know what it's like to be abandoned by your father. It it touches my heart to hear someone say, I didn't have a father growing up. My father abandoned me. There's some people in this room, your mother, your mother abandoned you and left you when you was a child. You know what it's like to be abandoned by family. To be abandoned by friends. To have someone turn their back on you. Can we all agree that's no fun? That it, that it causes heartache and heartbreak? And then the circumstances of life? In that heartbreak, you wonder, God, where are you? Why have you left me? You feel that way maybe when you're sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor says, I've got some bad news, you've got some cancer. You feel abandoned by God when... When you go to bed at night and you don't know where your child is and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've asked God to intervene instead of things getting better, things get worse. And you say, God, where are you in the midst of my pain? God, where are you in the midst of my trouble? God, where are you when I'm being judged unfairly? Where are you when it feels like everyone has turned their back on you? How many of you can relate to that? Come on. We've all gone through that. We've all felt that way. But please hear me for just a moment. There is a huge difference in feeling that way and God really turning his back. There's a huge difference in feelings and reality. The reality of this moment is Jesus is not feeling abandoned. Jesus is being abandoned by the Father. How many of you know that when God Almighty abandons you, that's a whole nother level of abandonment? I want you to write down three quick words, okay? Three quick words that just kind of help us process this statement by Christ. Number one, I want you to write down the word unity. The word unity. Jesus said, my God, my God. You see the unity in the fellowship of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, my God, he is speaking of relationship. He doesn't say, a God. He says, my God, possessive. God, we're in unity. We are in fellowship. Jesus made this statement in his earthly ministry. He said, I and my Father are, I and my Father are one. We have singleness, singleness of purpose. He consistently, Jesus in his life, He consistently sought to be in lockstep with the Father. He said, my whole life, my life here on earth is all about obedience to the Father, doing what the Father wants me to do. I need to stop here for just a minute and remind you again that Jesus is our greatest example. 
that every day, every day in my life and in your life, our desire should be to be in unity with the Father, to be in obedience to God, to do, to do His will for our life. Singleness of purpose. Christian, I ask you today, are you living? Did you live this week? Is it your desire this coming week to live in singleness of purpose for God's will for your life? Father, I want to be obedient to you because you are in relationship with him, right? So Jesus understood the singleness of his purpose. My, my, my meat, my food is to do the will of the Father. I and my Father are one. Perfect in their fellowship. Perfect in purpose. Perfect in their communion. The Father's will was the number one priority for Jesus. He was in complete unity with the Father. My God, my God. The second word I want you to write down is not only this word unity, but I want you to write down the word holiness. Holiness. God is holy. What God has said, He has said. The holiness of God is not open for debate. What God has declared unholy, man does not have a right to declare holy. God does not sit down and bargain with men and women over things that He has said in His Word, clearly spelled out in the Scriptures as right and wrong, holy or unholy. God is just and God is holy, and He will always respond to the sin of mankind through the eyes of His holiness. He's holy. He's just. I want you to look at this quote up on the screen by A.W. Pink, and I, I think it'll help you kind of process this moment. He said, The Holy Scriptures leaves it impossible to doubt that these words, speaking of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, these words of unequaled grief were both the fullest manifestation of divine love and the most awe-inspiring display of God's inflexible justice. Now, leave that quote up for just a minute. First of all, this statement is a statement of divine love. Aren't you glad you committed to memory as a child, John 3, 16? Huh? Come on now. I mean, is there a better verse in the Bible than that one? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. There is no greater display of love and affection than God the Father giving us His Son to die on the cross. Man, we need to thank Him for that today. That Christ went through this awful, painful agony and He dies on the cross. And in this moment when He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll tie this together a little bit more in just a moment. But you have to see the level of love that Jesus is going through and He's displaying for mankind as he hangs on the cross and he suffers in agony and he suffers abandonment and rejection. But the last part of that quote says, it's also in this moment that we see the most awe-inspiring display of God's inflexible justice. Now please hear me for just a minute. 
God is not flexible when it comes to our sin and our behavior. Can I say that again? God's not flexible when it comes to what He has said and what He has spoken in the Word. In other words, God will always justly and in His holiness deal with sin. God's justice and His holiness are actually on display in verse number 46 for all the world to see. Why do you say that, Pastor Tim? Here it is. Most scholars say that it's right precisely in this moment when Jesus makes this statement, it is actually the moment that Paul described in Corinthians when he said, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In this moment, the sinless Son of God, who had never had an evil thought, who had never been disobedient, who had never lied, who had never committed immoral sin. Jesus, the only one who has ever lived a sinlessly perfect life, in this moment became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's powerful. That's the gospel. The gospel is, is that 2,000 years ago when Jesus was hanging on the tree in this moment, he was actually taking my sin and your sin in his body on the tree. And so we see God's, God's inflexible, his inflexible justice. As he looks at Jesus, his son on the cross, and he takes my sin in his body, the scripture says that he turns his back on his son. Think about the birth announcement. The birth announcement was marked by what? It was marked by a bright light, right? And, and, and from that light, the light was shining over Bethlehem. It was the light that guided the angels, the light that came from the birth announcement to the shepherds that were in the field. And so there's, this, there's the, the beauty of light and this great celebration at the birth of Christ. But now 34 years later, this moment is not marked by light. It's marked by darkness. Darkness fills the earth. It just reminds me of how dark, how black, and how ugly sin is. Sin. And the darkness. Christ is lonely. He's lonely as He hangs on the cross. And in this moment, we hear those words that, that are really the greatest display of love, but the greatest display of God's holiness and righteousness because God cannot look on sin. The sin that He sees on the cross is not Jesus' sin, but it's my sin. And God turns His back on His Son. How in that moment, Jesus receives the wrath and the condemnation and the judgment of, of the Father in Himself. Why did He do that? He did that for me. We love John 3.16, right? But there's 20 verses later, another verse. That's John 3.36. That says, anyone who does not believe on the Son, the wrath of God abides on his life. Did you know it's a whole lot easier to get up and preach a gospel that's all about love? Just hear me for just a minute. It, 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 it's so much easier to tell people, oh, you know, Jesus loves you and Man, if you'll just do this or that, Jesus loves you. And, but if you preach the whole gospel, 
you have to tell people if you reject Christ, the wrath of God abides upon you. The beauty of the cross in this moment, when Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? You've got to connect the dots here, okay? The beauty of this moment is that Jesus took my punishment on himself on the tree. That's enough to make somebody say hallelujah. And because of what Jesus does in this moment, it enables Paul to write in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1, there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? I'm no longer condemned. I no longer have the penalty of, of sin upon my life. Tim, how did you get there? I'm so glad you asked. When I was 13 years old, I didn't understand all this fully. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate things and, you know, we've got to figure every little thing out. Some of you are more analytical than others. How many of you can testify the fact you just sometimes in your mind make things more complicated than it really is? When I was 13, I didn't understand all of this. I didn't know how to articulate all this. But here's what I understood in that moment when I was 13. I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I knew that it was a moment in my life, the realization of what happened at the cross, that Jesus was not just a good man and a good prophet or a good luck charm. Jesus was my Savior, and he died on the cross for my sin. And when I was 13, I, I bowed my head, and I acknowledged my sin. I believed on Jesus. I confessed my sin and confessed him as Lord. And now for these last 33 years, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord because of what he did for me. Now the penalty of sin no longer rests upon my life because of what Christ did for me. But watch. I understood that God is holy and I'm not. Please hear me. If you're here today and your mindset is, well, I, you know, I am a good person. I go to church. I pay my bills. I help the neighbor out. Hey, I even cut somebody's grass this week for free. And surely when I get to heaven, God's going to bring me up there and there's going to be like a scale and that scale is going to be there and, and there's going to be the good side and the bad side. And when I get there, I'm just hoping that it's 51 to 49. <laughs> that I do just enough good things. You know, hey, I, you know, I might cuss every now and then, but I'm a good person. Come on, get in my world here for just a minute. You know, I might, I might fly off the handle, but hey, look, if, any, if anybody's going to make it, I think I am. If that's your testimony, you've got a really, really weak testimony. Because if you know Christ, here's what you know. You can't save yourself. You're born in this world a sinner. And the only one that can do anything about your sin is not you. It's Jesus. God is holy. It's not about your righteousness. It's about the righteousness of Christ. That when you repent of your sins and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're made righteous in Him. The last word, and I'm done. Unity, holiness. The third word I want you to write down is the word transfer, okay? The word transfer. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 13 said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what happens in Matthew 27, verse 46. He became a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Jesus became cursed by the Father. 
the curse and the penalty of sin that rested on me, it was transferred to Jesus on the cross. And now at night, I don't go to bed worried. I don't worry about going to sleep saved and waking up lost. Please, please hear me for just a minute. I know this church, there's a lot of different backgrounds, different denominations and things that come in here. Please hear me. If you, if you live in a world where you don't know if you're saved one minute and lost the next, that's a miserable place to live. It really is. Because Christ came once and for all for the sins of the world. And, and, and hear people say, well, you know, once saved, always saved. Here, here's the way I say it. If once saved, always saved. If you've truly been born again by God's grace, you never get unborn. You, once you're saved, you never become lost. Because John chapter 10 says that Christ holds us in the palm of his hand and no man is able to pluck us out of his hand. That sounds pretty secure to me. In Christ. How does that happen? There's a transfer that takes place. The penalty, the wrath, the judgment. Christ took in himself on the cross. D.A. Carson said in this crowd, dear election, the horror of the world's sin and the cost of our salvation are revealed. Someone said at the cross, man did a work. He displayed his depravity by taking the perfect one and with wicked hands nailing him to the tree. At the cross, Satan did a work. He manifested his insatiable enmity against the woman's seed by bruising his heel. At the cross, the Lord Jesus did a work. He died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. But at the cross, God did a work. He exhibited his holiness and satisfied his justice by pouring out his wrath on the one who was made sin for us. Isn't that good news today? So, so let, me, let me wrap it up this way. I told you this sermon was kind of heavy, didn't I? Let me speak first to Christians, okay? Christian, on the authority of the Word of God, you have felt abandoned, but you have never been abandoned. Christian, hear me. You have felt like God wasn't there. You have cried out, God, where are you? And I remind you, God is right beside you because he will never leave us or forsake us. He never turns his back on his children. Aren't you glad today the father never kicks us out of the family? He never says, you're out of here. He never says, you're on your own. No. God is with us, always with us. So whatever you're going through today, remember this. Jesus was abandoned by the Father on the cross so that you and I would always feel accepted. That we would feel accepted. We are. That's what the Bible says about us. We are accepted in the beloved. If you're a child of God, you're never not accepted. So feel his love today. Feel his presence. Jesus was abandoned by the Father so that you would feel accepted in the beloved. That's good news today. Because I'm going to tell you something. In this cruddy, mixed up, messed up world, we're all going to cry out, God, where are you, right? But when we feel that way, what do we need to do? We need to run back to what God has said and spoken over us in the Word. We're accepted. Let me speak a word to those in the room today that may not know Christ as Lord and Savior. You remember a few minutes ago when I said it's one thing to feel abandoned? It's another thing to truly be abandoned. Two separate things, right? 
If you're lost today and you're without Christ and you have not, you've not fully understood the weight of this moment when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he took the sin of the world on himself, I want you to know that you should not only feel abandoned, you are abandoned. There's coming a day when we will stand before God. The scripture makes it very clear. We're at enmity with God. That's what it says in Romans 5 and verse 10. Our sin separates us from a holy and a righteous God. And there's coming a day when we will stand before God and we will give an account for our life and there won't be a scale. The only question will be, have you appropriated, have you repented of your sins, acknowledged that you're a sinner, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and confessed your sin? In that moment, that's the only thing that's going to matter, not how much good and how much bad you've done. But in that moment, there's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. That's what the Bible says. And if you're not in the sheep... If you're in the goats, the goats representing those who are not born again, the Bible says that you will, this is not Coleman theology, this is Bible theology, you will be cast into darkness, into an eternal lake of fire, forever separated from a holy and a righteous God. And God will say, he specifically is speaking in Matthew's gospel about even some who do what I do, <laughs> being a pastor, teacher. He said, there's coming a day when there's going to be some pastors standing in front of me, and here's what I'm going to have to say to them. I'm going to have to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You know what? Please hear me, gang. Please hear me. I wish, I wish that I could stand up here today and just tell you that, hey, we're all going to heaven. Let's just join hands and sing Kumbaya. And just, hey, we're look, we're all going to heaven. God's going to take us all to our eternal place of rest. I could tell you that and lie to you. Because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is coming a day when those who reject this moment if you reject Christ, there's coming a day when you will be abandoned by the Father for all eternity. In a lake of fire where the scripture says where the worm dies not, and there will not be another opportunity for you to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to tell you, that's not popular preaching today. It's just not. And I'm not trying to do this to myself. I'm just trying to tell you. I go and listen to preaching and other things, and I hear this ooey-gooey, fluffy-duffy, come to Jesus, never talk about sin, never tell anybody to repent, never tell anybody you need to be born again, never tell anybody you're going to die without Christ and be separated. There's a whole lot of that out there today. And I'm thankful for my friends who preach the gospel of Jesus. I'm thankful for every one of them. I'm not mad about it. I'm not excited about it. I wish I could stand up here today and say, hey, don't you worry about it. We're all going to end up at the right place. That's not the truth. The truth is, there's going to be, please hear me, this is what the Bible says. There's coming a day 
when the majority, the overwhelming majority of people in the world are going to be abandoned by the Father for all eternity. How can you say that, Tim? The Bible says broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting. And I'm glad to tell you today, you can get on the narrow way. How? By acknowledging that you're a sinner, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and confessing your sin. Don't walk out the door and get in your car and reject Christ. Don't, don't walk out the door today and listen to Jesus say, Father, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> and the best I could in these last few minutes tell you why Jesus was forsaken by the Father. He was forsaken for you so that one day you won't be forsaken by the Father. So believe. Believe. Receive. Christian, walk out of here today rejoicing <laughs> that you're accepted in the beloved. Quit telling yourself God's not there. God is there. He's with you every step of the way and he will never leave you or forsake you. Amen? Can we pray together?